You're listening to the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast, your source for news, discussion, and debates about the Vols and Lady Vols basketball programs. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else podcasts are found. Hello, everyone, and welcome in to another episode of the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast. I am Nathaniel Rutherford, joined by Gene Henley, and we're here for another episode here in the offseason about Tennessee basketball, Ben's women's basketball, Vols, and Lady Vols. Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, thank you so much. We are the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast. You can find us everywhere podcasts are found, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Tune in, you name it, we're there. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Vol Hoops Fever on Twitter and Vol Basketball Fever on Facebook. So give us a follow, give us a like, let us know your thoughts on the show. If you have anything you want us to talk about in the future, please let us know, hit us up, and communicate and engage with the show and with us. Gene, a couple of things I wanted to bring up and talk about on the show today. The first thing I want to get to is actually a topic I'd written down several weeks ago that I kind of have been kicking down the road a little bit because I, you know, it's just kind of an off-season topic that I think is a, a good discussion point, um, but was in no like huge rush to talk about it. But then an article came out this week that I, I thought was really well done. I thought, hey, this ties in exactly to something I've written down to talk about before, so let's go ahead and get to it. And that is about Tennessee's non-conference schedule for this season and then how tough it is and whether or not it's going to be a good thing or a bad thing for the program. It's a great thing for fans. Tennessee is going to be playing some very, very interesting and in some cases very, very good teams this year in non-conference. Just to run down what we know of, of the non-conference schedule so far right now, kicking off the season, or I guess tipping off the season, excuse me, Tennessee hosts UT Martin and ETSU in early November, and then they play in the Hall of Fame tip-off tournament on November 20th. They play against Villanova. And then they'll play either North Carolina or Purdue. Purdue is supposed to be a very good team this year. North Carolina, I think, is going to be you know better than they were last year. I think they're going to be a, a, a you know a pretty good team this year as well. Villanova is always pretty solid uh, under Jay Wright, and, and they're very consistently a pretty good program. So those are all three really good teams that Tennessee could be facing. Any any of those three, obviously, they will face Villanova um, and either UNC or Purdue. Then they host Tennessee Tech and Presbyterian before going on the road in December to face Colorado at Colorado in the Jimmy V Classic in Madison Square Garden. Tennessee would play in Texas Tech, which that would definitely be uh, another tough matchup there. They host UNC Greensboro, USC Upstate, and then they play a neutral site game in Nashville against Memphis in mid-December on a Saturday. They host Arizona, which that would be a tougher matchup in previous years. This year, new coach, kind of a, a different program right now at this point where they are. But still imagine, you know, that's not going to be a roll over and, and win type of game. It's still going to be a competitive game in Knoxville. And of course, the other big one, the last kind of big non-conference one right now, Tennessee mm-hmm. playing at Texas in the SEC Big 12 Challenge in late January of 2022 in Austin, Texas. And the reason I brought this up because I, an article came out by Ryan Shumpert of Rocky Top Insider talking about he believes in, in his column that this is a this non-conference schedule is a good thing for Tennessee, that it's going to prepare them not only for the SEC, uh, but for March. And kind of looking through um, some of the points he made, talks about that uh, seven come against Power 5 opponents or or teams projected in the NCAA tournament currently here in the early offseason, and six coming against mid or low major programs. Uh, The Texas matchup looks to be one of the 
potentially biggest ones, Purdue and Texas likely will be in the nation's top 10 to begin the season, writes Ryan. Longhorns could be a Final Four contender in Chris Beard's first season. If y'all forgot, you know, Texas hired Chris Beard this offseason. They also landed top transfer Marcus Carr along with, I mean, a bevy of other transfers this past, uh, up this offseason as well. Uh, if Tennessee plays North Carolina instead of Purdue, they'll face another top brand and a top 25 opponent that will draw national television eyes. Colorado, Memphis, and Texas Tech are all projected to make the NCAA tournament, and Arizona is currently in ESPN Joe Lenardi's first four out, according to Ryan Shumpert. He says the strong, excuse me, the strong competition shouldn't just give Tennessee experience against solid competition, but potentially the nation's best. That should prepare Rick Barnes' squad not only for what's set to be a strong SEC that could get possibly eight teams in the NCAA tournament, but also prepare them for the second weekend of the big dance if the Vols make it that far. This challenge should be good for a Tennessee team who seemed to suffer from the lack of a strong out-of-conference uh, schedule a season ago. Of course, that wasn't Barnes and his staff's fault. The season was delayed two weeks, and then non-conference matchups with VCU, Gonzaga, and Notre Dame were canceled due to COVID-19 uh, in Tennessee's, uh, not breaking Tennessee's personnel. This season, the Vols will be relying on young players. They may face some learning curves with the young roster, and so many challenging games early in the season should be a good early season barometer for the Vols and beneficial in the long run. So Gene, I, I I like this piece. I think Ryan made some good points and I agree with most of them. I think this is, it is going to be a good test for these young guys. And, and like he said, Tennessee tried to have a really good non-conference schedule last off season or last season, like they've had most of the time under Barnes, but it ended up, you know, not, not working out because of COVID and, and cancellations and whatnot, because they were going to play VCU Gonzaga and Notre Dame. And those would have been, better non-conference games than some of the games Tennessee played, or just outright Tennessee didn't get to play as many games. That was true for all of college basketball. Um, but as he mentions here, the non-conference matchups will provide Tennessee fans a chance to watch Barnes' team play competitive, important regular season games. He also mentions that it's important for fans' experience, which I agree, I think I think it's for sure good for the fan experience. I'm focusing, I want us to focus more on like the actual team. I agree a lot with what he said, but I also can see where this could be a bad thing because yes, this this non-conference schedule, assuming kind of all goes more or less to plan, and these teams are, you know, more or less as good or bad as you think they're going to be, Tennessee's net and RPI, BPI, whatever, is all going to benefit from this, and this strength of the schedule is going to benefit them a ton. And as Ryan also points out, the SEC I think will be better. I don't think it's going to be, you know elite by any means, but I think it's a, a, a conference that's going to be a little deeper than they were last year. It's not going to be quite as top-heavy with three, you know, two really good teams, a, a third, and maybe a fourth teams that, you know, you will make for sure make the tournament and then, a, a, you know, two or three other teams that maybe make the tournament. I do think you'll probably potentially get a solid six teams in to the tournament this year. All of that to get to the point here with, I, I think it is good for Tennessee overall, but also, you have a lot of chances there early on before you even start conference play to rack up some losses. You could lose to Villanova. You could lose to Purdue um, if you play them. You could lose to North Carolina if you play them. I think you, you should be able to beat Colorado. I think you should beat Texas Tech. I, I, don't, I don't know enough about Texas Tech uh, for that right now for what they look, they're supposed to look like to know for sure. But you could lose to Memphis. You should be able to beat Arizona, and you could lose to Texas. I mean, that, that right there is, what, three, four, <clears throat> maybe even five losses in your, your non-conference play. That's not, you know, that's not devastating. It's not going to destroy your season by any means necessarily. But if you go with five losses and, and non-conference play and you get to SEC play and you, and you end up with another, you know, six or seven, if you're looking at it, that's still not a bad SEC season. 
that's going to give you 11, 12 losses heading into, you know, the SEC tournament where you would or probably knowing Tennessee's luck with the, the tournament, you'll get a 13th loss. And that's going to make you, you know, that's going to hurt your seating. Tennessee with that resume they have and depending on who they do and don't beat, will still probably make the, the tournament with 13 losses. But it's not going to be pretty. And it's not going to be a, a season that I think fans will be happy about. Again, I don't know that that'll happen, but I think, yes, it's good on paper for Tennessee to have this kind of non-conference schedule. But you got to go, you got to go out and win some of those games. You can't just rely on, oh, we played them. That's going to be enough to buoy us into a good seed and a, and a good matchup here. That will yeah. be true to an extent, but you got to win some of these games too. Yeah, and so I, I went ahead and pulled up the um, the non-conference schedule and had a chance to kind of look over it myself. I mean, you get the you get the two, you know, you get the two wins, uh, you know the. Potential. I mean, I mean, both UT Martin and ETSU have brand new coaches, and UT Martin's entire roster is brand new. Uh, first off, shout out to uh, the two kids from Cleveland, Grant Hurst and KK Curry, who are both on the team. Also, I mean, first off, you know, uh, let me not you know forget. Like, shout out to Ryan for uh, for doing good work. I mean, obviously, good dude. You know, liked him for my time on the beat. Uh, so, shout out to him for doing good work with. Uh, Tennessee baseball and you know now everything he's doing with uh, Rocky Top Insider but um, <clears throat> but yeah I mean ETSU also has a Cleveland kid Mo Shram uh, so I mean big ups to big ups to the city there uh, but I mean you get those two games then you start to really get into the meat of what you're trying to accomplish with the tip off tournament and then uh, you know Tech Presbyterian Colorado. You know, then you got you know the Texas Tech game. I don't think that they have a lot back because um, I mean, with the portal being what it is now, if your coach leaves, I mean, more often than not, you're gone. Mm-hmm. If you see, I mean, especially at that level, um, then you have Greensboro, you you know, upstate Memphis, Arizona, and then you know you go to January, you've got the big uh, the big conference game uh, at Texas. Um, with the news that we've heard today about Texas and Oklahoma, that, that that's a that's a massive conference game, right there nestled at the end of the month. But I mean, <clears throat> yeah, like you're going to have to win some of those games. Um, I'm not sure if they're done. I'm assuming they're done. Uh, I'm looking at four, five, six, nine, eleven, thirteen. Oh, okay, they snuck up to thirteen. So that's actually a full. They play an 18-game conference schedule. So, I mean, um, you're going to have to win some of those games. And there's more, like, the wins that you get. Like, you, you've got some opportunities now because, look, man, North Carolina's going to have a new coach. Uh, UT Martin, ETSU, new coaches. Tennessee Tech, uh, third-year coach with Pelfrey, you know, who obviously has SEC experience. I think Presbyterian has a new coach. Uh, Colorado, I, I don't think does, but Texas, Texas Tech, new coach. Arizona, uh, UNC Greensboro, new coach. You know, Memphis, no. Um, you know, and then Texas, new coach. So, like I said, I think Arizona does too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah Arizona, new coach. So you're, you're looking at a ton of opportunities there, especially with all with all those games uh, aside from the Texas game coming in the um, coming in the early part where teams are really trying to figure out exactly what they are, who they are. You aren't, I mean, you are some of that, but you have some, you have some building blocks that you kind of know about. 
um, you have some players that are back from, you know, that that played on last year's team that are back. That should make you better. That should make you more experienced. There's a there are guys there who know what your head coach is trying to accomplish. Um, and, and if you have the aspirations to go as deep as you want to go, you're going to have to win some of those games. You can't lose them all. You can't lose every game of substance. Like I mean, like you're gonna have to beat if you I don't I don't care if they're new coaches or what. Like you're gonna have to beat some of these teams. Um because, you know, they can you know, there's so much that there's so much benefit to you winning those games. Like so much. Like I said, if you lose, you know, maybe you can say we you can tweak some stuff here and there, but if you win, you don't have to face those teams again. And that goes on your resume. Like that's that's a resume building win, you know. For I me, mean, obviously, for you know, take out Martin, ETSU, Tech, Presbyterian. Take out those, you know, take out those games. If you go to Colorado and win, that's a big win. Go to Villanova. I'm sorry, you beat Villanova. It's a big win. You know, Purdue obviously is looked at as a, a good team this year. North Carolina, you know, we'll see what Hubert Davis can do with that team. Like, there's a lot of resume building wins, and typically the way these things go. If you beat a sort of power five type team, people are willing to give you a ton of credit, probably even more than is expected at times, you know, but like in non-conference action, like if you go out there, you know, I don't care if Texas Tech goes 0-31 this year. If you beat Texas Tech, not many people are going to dig too deep into the box score as to what's transpired there. Well, they're rebuilding their blah, 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 blah. People are going to say, man, you beat Texas Tech. And it's not until you get into March that people may start digging a little deeper into that. But you can't worry about that on December 7th. You know, like your goal is to go out there and get a win against a team that, look, was just in, was in the national championship, what was it, two years ago? Uh, you know, technically three or yeah, yeah, whatever. It, I mean, two. Yeah, technically three seasons ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's just in the national championship game. Not that far removed. It was a good team this year. With not with you know, in my opinion, not necessarily great pieces. Some good. I mean, you know, like the uh, McClung kid was a good player, um, but not not a ton of great pieces. So Tennessee's focus just needs to be taking care of business against these. Obviously, taking care of business against the the lesser teams, you know, the teams that you're expected to beat by 25 or so, um, and really be competitive in all these other games. Because, look, I mean, I think we're going to get into it a little bit later, but, you know, Tennessee's got some, you know, whereas some of these teams that they're going to face in the early going, they are, you know, they're maybe putting in new coaching staffs, new systems, new styles, whatever, new tweaks or whatever. Uh, Tennessee's going to have some players that they're trying to, you know, some of their rotational pieces from last year are trying to work themselves back from different things. So it's not to say that Tennessee's just going to walk out there like the team, what, three, four years ago, that's just automatically ready to, you know, to check ball. You know, that team with Grant Williams and those guys, that team was, their whole team was back. So they were pretty much ready to check ball the second they got out there, the second the season started, which is why they got off to such a great start because it was pretty much the same thing. They didn't have the guys that had the lingering injuries. Um, those guys are just ready to play. And this team won't be that. 
So like, you know, it, it's just as, you know, everybody's going to kind of be looking at you like this is a chance for a quality win, just like you're looking at them as such. But if, I mean, look, if Tennessee's healthy, I, I, I suspect that they'll be favored to win some of these games in the early going. And you win some, you get that momentum going into SEC play. Yeah, and just to kind of re- reiterate what had Ryan said, like looking at some of the rankings and stuff, again, we're talking about this in mid-late July. Like this is very early kind of racketology ranking stuff here. And we still have, still like rosters are in flux. Shackleford just announced that he's taking his name out of the portal and is staying at Alabama. So that's a boost for them because it looked like, you know, he's going to leave, but he's coming back. So you're, you're still getting some transfer news and, and different things like that and, and late additions, like departures off rosters and stuff. So we're still not even totally settled exactly for some of these teams. Um, but looking at some of that early bracketology from Joe Lenardi at ESPN, he currently has Tennessee as a early four seed playing Liberty, which would be interesting um, in the East East bracket. But looking at some of the other teams that we just talked about for non-conference for Tennessee, he has Colorado as one of the last four buys, and they are a 11 seed in his, his bracket. And actually, interesting enough, he has them playing Texas Tech as a six seed. Uh, so Texas Tech and Colorado, two Tennessee opponents, has them playing each other, um, but he also has Arizona as the first four out, which is a Tennessee the team Tennessee's playing, and you also look at some of these other teams uh, that are currently projected by Joe Lenardi to be in there uh, that Tennessee plays in the non-conference, because there's obviously you know teams like Alabama, Florida, LSU that are in the SEC, but looking at some of the non-conference slate of teams that Tennessee is projected, or Tennessee will be playing and where they're projected, you also have Villanova as a projected three seed, Purdue as a projected two seed. Tennessee could play them. Uh, we'll see if they'll play either them or North Carolina. Texas as a projected two seed. Um, you have, <coughs> I, I lost one of them here. Memphis as a projected eight seed. You have, well, Kentucky as a projected two seed. And then uh, I lost one of them. Where's the other one? That, oh, yeah, North Carolina as projected five seed. So a lot of teams in there projected as like a, you know, in that two to five type range, two to six type range in the city, which those are. That means you're a pretty good team. That means you're in the top 20, top 25 or so of, of college basketball, essentially, basically, if you're making those, you know, earning those seeding and whatnot. So that's a lot of teams like that, like I said, that are in that range. And then you'll mention Colorado and Arizona as kind of bubble teams at this point early, early in the offseason. And that, again, doesn't even include looking at the SEC with teams like Alabama, LSU, Florida, Arkansas, um, Kentucky, that Tennessee is going to have to face that are all considered – and Auburn as well, actually, is in Joe Lenardi's early bracketology. A little surprising, but they they did have a pretty good offseason, I think. Um, but that's those are all, of course, SEC school that Tennessee is going to have to face. So, yeah, I mean, you, you've got to not just be competitive in some of these games, like you said, Gene. You've got to win, and you can't. It can't just be. I mean, getting a win against Colorado, like you said, that'd be good. Getting a win against Arizona would be good, especially Colorado because that's on the road. That's going to be a, a big boost to your net because that's a that'd be like probably probably a quad one victory depending on you know how Colorado turns out to be but most likely if you beat Colorado on the road that's a a quad one victory in the net rankings for Tennessee but you can't just beat some of the teams you're kind of expected to the ones you're favored against you have to go and and beat maybe a like a Villanova would be a a good victory for Tennessee beating a North Carolina Purdue would be great for Tennessee beating Texas that that one's gonna be the hardest one of the schedule I think of the non-conference is Texas and I don't think it's like a bold statement. I think it's just his fact. Unless unless those that team doesn't gel together because they do have a lot of new faces and a new head coach, you run the risk of that happening of, of them not being able to gel together um, <clears> under <throat> these circumstances. But I 
don't think that'll be as big of an issue because I think Chris Beard is a really good coach. But that one, obviously, I think is the biggest, toughest one. And if Tennessee has to play Purdue, that's going to be tough. And it seems like, for whatever reason, Tennessee just plays Purdue in men's basketball almost every year. Or it feels like every other year because they have they have played just about every other year at this point because they played this, if they if they played this year, they'll last time they played it was two seasons ago. Before that, I think it was wasn't two seasons ago, but it was like late 2017 when they played them. So every other year, it really does feel like they're playing Purdue. So, um, yeah, you, you've got to not just compete in some of these games. You've got to win some of these ones you're not supposed to. Memphis will be tough because it's in, in Nashville, and Memphis is going to be tough because they've been tough under under Penny Hardaway, and they've beaten Tennessee once. Tennessee's beaten them once, so the series is tied. This is going to be the rubber match. Both teams are going to be very motivated, especially in the mid-state. So I think now, that'll be – yeah, me, go ahead. Go ahead. I'd like to – I always like to pose questions to you mm-hmm. um, as the Tennessee fan. Um, and, you know, this could be a, a question to pose to listeners of the pod as well. Um, appreciate you all listening. What is the record that would cause concern for you from non-conference play? Like, because you, you play 12 games before you ever play, uh, before you ever play an SEC game. What is the record that would, that would, you would say, I feel good about where we are as opposed to what's the record where you'd be like knowing what you know about their non-conference schedule like what is the record that would is it seven and five is it six and six is it eight and four I mean what what would it be for you for you to kind of you know look sideways and say maybe this team isn't what I think I thought it was yeah a six and six would be that you beat all the cupcakes essentially you're beating the teams that you're supposed to you've beaten UNC Upstate UNC Greensboro, Presbyterian, Tennessee Tech, ETSU, UT Martin. So you, you would like to think, at minimum, Tennessee has six non-conference victories this season. So if you go six and six, that's that's alarming. If you go five and seven, obviously that's that's extreme, like five bell alarm, alarming. But six and six is like the absolute, just like not even bare minimum, really. That that's like to me like the what should be the absolute floor for non-conference. And if Tennessee's at that point, that's a lot of cause for concern. I think even a seven and five is concerning because that means like there's a chance maybe you pull off an upset and you beat a, a Villanova or you beat a. I mean, at that point, maybe Tennessee's playing better in January and they beat Texas or something like that. But more than likely, it means you like beat an Arizona or you beat a um, a Memphis, a, a team that's kind of more of a, a bubble type team that or Colorado, I guess maybe too. At least that one would be on the road. But like you know, you you more than likely you have beaten all six teams you're supposed to beat, beaten kind of a bubble team. And then you've lost all the other games. And if you're competitive in those other games, that's good. But you would still want to win. So I think a seven and five, even eight and four, is kind of a eh, not great. But also you can this you you can look at it too as it's early in the season, and how much of those losses come at the, because you have guys like Fulkerson who are, has battled injuries in this off season. Josiah Jordan James, which we'll get to in a second, battling again injuries in the offseason. Young guys having to be counted on, you know, for the first time in a college level, knocking off rust, all this different stuff. You know, you can discount it a little bit more in November and in December. But when you get to the time where it's SEC play and you're in late January and you get into February and early March, like that's when the rust is no longer an excuse. Not not this season. Last season, yeah, COVID, that, that was like a whole different ball game. That, that, that was – not to make excuses, but you—I mean—you literally did kind of have a built-in excuse for that season if you, if you had struggles uh, for most teams. So, like, 
This year, though, you have more of a true offseason with your teammates and everything. So if you come out of the gates slow against the UT Martin and ETSU, and then you lose to Villanova and it's not necessarily close, then you're wondering, uh, that's uh-oh, what's going on here? So I think, to answer your question, I think a 7-5 and five would be a reason for concern. Even 8-4 and four wouldn't be... Because you're not... I don't think if you have gone 8-4 and four before the season... SEC season begins. I don't think you've gotten like a high quality win. That that to me, if you're eight and four, likely means you've beaten a Arizona and maybe a Memphis or Colorado, and that's that's not bad. But I mean, it means you probably lost to a Villanova, lost to a North Carolina or Purdue, and lost to a Texas Tech, and that's not like. Again, it depends on how you lose those games, I guess, too, and, and how you feel. But even eight and four is not going to feel great. I think if you're wanting to have a lot of positivity heading into the SEC slate and, and feel kind of good about where this program is and, and their potential for you know March and stuff I think 9-3 nine, nine and three. I, I would feel very good if Tennessee went 9-3 and three in, in non-conference before you know the Big 12 SEC challenge or before SEC play I don't know what, what the likelihood of that is but I think 9-3 and three, you gotta feel pretty good obviously anything better than that 10-2, 11-1, whatever that's gonna be you're going to feel really good. But I think 9-3, and three, that means you got a big win somewhere. You, you beat a team most likely means you beat a team that either you weren't favored or you were favored by, like, you know, it was a toss-up. You're favored by, like, one, two points in those games. And I think that, to me, means you've beaten one of the, at least one of those, and it probably means you're competitive in most of the other, um, you know, the other losses you had. So, to me, 7-5, and five, not feeling great. 8-4, and four, still not feeling amazing. Nine and three, I think you take that and you're thinking, okay, that's a good showing. You feel like you've laid a good foundation. Anything better than nine and three, I think you're saying, okay, this team is legitimately a, a pretty good team. Especially if you're like, like I said, if you're eleven and one, and, and your only loss is to a Purdue or to a, um, you know, a, a Villanova or whatever, then you're probably thinking, okay, this is a this is a pretty darn good team heading, heading into SEC play. All right, I'm gonna play this game all day. So you are nine and three. And your losses are UT Martin, ETSU, and okay. <laughs> how, how are you feeling? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like it does depend on who the losses are too. But I don't think no, if you're done it. Yeah, it would, I think if you can beat uh, Villanova, you're going to beat UT Martin. <laughs> I, I, it would just be. I, I would just wonder how mm-hmm. the fan base would would handle that. Because I mean, look, I, I spent enough time on the Tennessee beat to know that. During football season, everybody has these thought experiments as, well, what if we lost to UTC, but we beat Florida? How would we feel about it, who we are? Um, well, I mean, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, no, it's obviously I'm just joking. But it, mm-hmm. that would be – I think that people would be – well, and, and I'll say this much. I think everybody would ultimately be happy with that because if, if you if, – if your losses are UT Martin, ETSU, and Tennessee Tech, that means you started the season off two and three. You beat Villanova. You then beat, you know, Carolina or Purdue. You've got the, you know, you've got that Tech game, which is technically kind of like a trap game because it's right after coming off two wins in the Hall of Fame Classic. You get yourself right. You know, Rick runs them. Uh, Rick runs them in practice, and they run off Presbyterian at Colorado, Texas Tech, USC Greensboro, USC Upstate, Memphis, Arizona. Uh, to end their non-conference play, so I think ultimately everybody would accept that uh, having that sort of momentum going into SEC play, it would just be funny to watch happen because um, I don't know how 
I, I don't know how people are supposed to to digest that sort of non-conference uh, roller coaster. As a person who has been through a Tennessee roller coaster in the 2019 <laughs> football season, week by week, uh, you know, I, I, like I, I still have nightmares about 2019. You know, so, you know Georgia State still, uh, you know, keeps me up at night sometimes. But uh, dealing with that, I should say. Uh, as, a, as a person who's been through those sorts of roller coasters, I think that would be one that I don't think anybody would want to go through because it's like, are we good? You know, are, are we a decent team? But you've just run off seven straight wins, including being some pretty quality programs. Yeah, I, and, and, and to like to have two different like, kind of like warring opinions here too of non-conference. You know, non-conference doesn't necessarily dictate in basketball how you're going to be at the season because looking at two SEC examples last year, um, Alabama was five and three in non-conference play before they got to SEC play, and people were thinking, "You know, what in the world? This this team has a lot of talent and a lot of upside. What are they doing losing to Western? I mean, Western Kentucky was a good program, but what are they doing losing to Clemson, to Stanford, to Western Kentucky? Like they they shouldn't be losing to these types of teams. Um, and they it wasn't like they were they they, they scored fifty six against Clemson. They scored um, sixty four against Stanford. So it wasn't like they were putting up a lot of offense." Like they would end up doing eventually, so, and you're thinking like, what is happening? Like th- this, this, this team, they lost. Or they won 83-80 to Furman again. Furman was a good program, but like, they had some very head scratching results in non conference, and then they go off and win ten straight to start SEC play, lose to Oklahoma in the Big Twelve SEC Challenge, and then go on to only, only lose a couple more SEC games and finish the regular season twenty one and six, win the SEC tournament and then go and, and lose to UCLA in overtime in the Sweet 16. And, and, of course, that was UCLA heading on to their big run. On the flip side, Missouri starts the, the non-conference play 6-0 and with wins over Illinois and, and Oregon and looking like, dang, this team could be a, a top-four SEC team, maybe maybe one that finishes, you know, that, that could be – we talked about this when we were still the SEC Basketball Fever podcast. Mm. Hey, is this team going to be a legitimate, you know, contender – for a top four seed in the SEC, or are they going to fall off? We've seen console teams do this before, kind of start off strong and falter down the stretch. And lo and behold, that's what they did. 6-0 and in non-conference play to start the year, and then they finish, I think, 8-8 eight and eight in SEC play, uh, win one game in the SEC tournament, and then lose in the first round to Oklahoma in the NCAA tournament. So that's like a, that's like a tale of two very different things where you're feeling really good about Missouri heading into SEC play after a strong non-conference showing having a lot of question marks about Alabama heading into SEC play. And then those two teams had very, very different outcomes um, when it came to kind of what you're expecting and kind of what you're thinking about them by the time SEC play started in late December, I guess kind of, yeah, December 29th was the and 30th were the first couple of SEC games for them. So like, again, it's the non-conference isn't the end all be all. And it's not always indicative of how good you're going to be as a team. Cause again, Alabama, not a good non-conference Missouri a great non-conference and those two teams went in complete opposite directions by the time SEC played rolled around Bama obviously won the SEC regular season Missouri <coughs> finished seventh in the SEC um, with an eight and eight record and Kentucky was eight and nine right behind them so yeah it, it, it and Tennessee didn't have a bad non-conference showing but obviously you know their schedule wasn't as tough as it could have been but I think they were uh, let me double check I think they were like had one. I think one loss in non-conference play before. No, they were undefeated too. They were six and zero in non-conference play before SEC play started. And then you know, it wasn't like they were they didn't have the nearly as big of a drop off as Missouri did. 
uh, but they went you know ten and seven in SEC play. So again, would you start off six and zero in non conference play with, with with wins against Colorado, not a bad team, Cincinnati, not a bad team. Um, I guess well, Cincinnati ended up not being great, but you know you didn't have a strong showing in non con non con play for them, but still six and zero start, and then you end up going ten and seven in SEC play, but still somehow beat Kansas in the middle of all that too, which is crazy. Um, but yeah, so the non conference isn't to me especially in basketball when you're starting in November, December, isn't, it isn't usually a great indicator of what your team's going to be by the time you get to February, March. But I, I think, you know, all good points that I think, like you said, kind of jokingly, obviously, but it also does kind of depend on uh, who you lose to, how you feel, because you can be a 9-3 non-conference record, but you can also, if you lose to, even if you, not even all three being bad losses, even if you were 9-3, and three, but one of those losses comes to like an ETSU, UT Martin, or, you know, one of those other schools, um, <clears throat> St. Greensboro, whatever, then you definitely do feel differently. You could have beaten a Colorado, a Texas Tech, a Villanova, but if you lose to one of those other schools, you're like, uh, well, what was that? Like, you know, what, what happened here? So I, th- I think that's, th- those are all good points. And I'll, I'll link into this, the description of this podcast, if anyone's interested, the uh, <coughs> link to Ryan's piece on Rocky Top Insider about the non-conference schedule and, and his thoughts on why it's, it's good for the program but for the last half of this podcast episode Gina I want to talk about some Tennessee roster notes and this one I'm also going to link to this as well um, it's actually from Tony Basilio's blog and I, I, I don't usually I guess quote or cite directly from different things from uh, whether it's Basilio or VolQuest 247 especially those other two because they're usually behind a pace site and I don't want to you know give away their their premium stuff for free on our podcast so i try not to do that but i have you know i've read different things from what you know different stuff rob lewis has said from ball quest and different things that grant ramey has said from two or seven but basilio's stuff is free on his website i don't think he's going to care that we talk about it here in fact like i said i'll, I'll plug his, his stuff and link back to it as well but just some interesting notes on here that i wanted to discuss because some of it really kind of it, it to me justified things that you've said, Gene, so far in this off season that I think maybe some fans probably disagreed with with what you're saying. But I think that um, to me it justified a few things you'd, you'd brought up before. One thing I will say is, according to Basilio, uh, Josiah Jordan James has a wrist injury right now. He said it is quote worse than John Fulkerson's. Fulkerson right now is expected to be out for another couple of weeks, but he should be back in time um, sometime in September. So you know, he's he's kind of on pace and on track for his recovery. But Josiah Jordan-James has another injury. It seems like he can't stay healthy, unfortunately, uh, at Tennessee. He's had injuries basically his whole Tennessee career since he first got to Tennessee. But a couple of the notes I wanted to mention here, a couple of, but one was really surprising to me was that Quentin DeBonge, according to Basilio, um, the early returns for him is that he's going to play right away. He says Barnes loves him, and UT is finding that his that he's a quality shooter, he's shot well in drills, and he's much more athletic than they thought he'd be He's been a nice surprise. That's interesting. So keep that in mind. And Huntley Hatfield, we've we've kind of talked about how we think he has a high ceiling and, and is you know very gifted physically and athletically. Kind of reflected here in the notes that says he is his skills, physical skills, and jumping are off the page or are jumping off the page already. Excuse me. Uh, he's been told that he plays at times like he has a like guard aspirations. The knock on him right now is that he needs to mature and his conditioning is not the greatest yet, but that will get better. He's extremely talented, however, so keep an eye out for that. You know, can he overcome the conditioning? Can he mature? If he can, he has a high ceiling, a lot of a lot of potential. But here's one that I think is interesting too that um I think will 
probably catch fans' eye. And, and like we kind of hinted at it last episode when we talked about Olivia Camwall. And that's about Jonas Adu. According to Basilio's blog here, it says he has a long way to go for playing time this season. I hear that he's behind Olivier and Urosh as you read this post. Tennessee is hoping to toughen him up in the coming months. So the two big things to me, Gene, we, we both, I, I think to me, I, I was very surprised about the Quentin DeBonje thing. I, I think he's a great player. I talked to his coach, talked to him uh, when he committed and ended up signing with Tennessee. And I thought he had a decently high ceiling. I just didn't expect him to come in and be a big-time contributor right away. I figured he'd redshirt. And this all this doesn't mean he's going to come in and be a big-time contributor. He could still, you know, have play a role and play minutes, but not be like a, you know, a guy who's going to play 15 minutes a game or anything like that. But he, it seems like he could be surprising people and, and they, he could have a bigger role than expected as a true freshman. And Jonas Adu, who I know you personally have said multiple times that you think he's a guy that, despite his recruiting rankings, he could turn out to be a really good player but you don't expect him to come in and be an instant impact type freshman. And I think if Basilio, what he's saying is true, it backs up what you said of kind of, whoa, let's pump the brakes a little bit here on this guy. He could be really good down the line, but it's very hard to be coming in, especially in what Rick Barnes likes to do with his post players and be an instant impact post player as a true freshman in the SEC and in a Rick Barnes offense. So anything else? I know you're probably plenty more you want to add to that. I would like to have some good discussion here about Josiah Jordan James injury, DeBonge, on the Hatfield to do any of these guys that get mentioned. He also talked about Fulkerson, Jemima Shag, and Justin Powell. Um, and I think Powell will actually be an interesting one to talk about because he also mentions Viscovi and Bailey. But first off, your your thoughts on Jonas and DeBonge, because I think those are the two, really, the, the, to me, the two biggest ones that caught my eye because I think a lot of people probably expected Meshack to be a guy that comes in and be, you know, is a, a good bench contributor and plays more minutes. But it kind of sounds like DeBonge might be a guy who. I don't know about having a leg up, but he could be a guy that could steal some minutes there and say, hey, you know, I'm going to carve out a role here as a true freshman and, and you know, be a surprise player. And then Adu is a guy who, by all intents and purposes right now, looks like he could be third on the depth chart at the, I guess at the, I don't know, fourth, depending on what, what position he's at. Is he at the four? Is he at the five? Either way, it looks like he's pretty much on the bench right now for sure um, and behind Tennessee's other, you know, experienced guard or experienced forward players, which shouldn't be a surprise if you think about it. But I know people saw the recruiting rankings for him and saw that he got a fifth star on rivals and thought, well, this guy can come in and be an impact player too. It's not always the case for post players though. If you've been listening to the pod, we've been trying to tell y'all this was going to happen. Um, and look, we, we could ultimately be wrong, but, mm-hmm. uh, but, and, but it's just something, you know, like, I spend, I mean, as, again, as if you've listened to the pod, you know, I spend a lot of time around AAU tournaments and AAU arenas. I'm actually, I'm leaving for Orlando tomorrow morning and we'll be down there for four days for another tournament. Um, and what you see is typically there aren't many guys uh, a due size um, that come in and, like, look, that you can expect a lot offensively out of. You can get some defensive stuff. Like that's where I think the kid could have his his best impact early on, just because I mean, he's athletic enough to maybe make a difference. Um, if he if he completely buys into, uh, you know, fit offensively. Look, man, when I watch the tape, I mean, you're looking at it. You're, you're talking about a kid who like who you know wanted to float around the three-point line and catch and shoot threes and stuff and like kid that's not who you're going to be here um 
I mean, if you go back with, you know, then I was told when I first jumped on the beat that Kyle Alexander could shoot threes. He was a good shooter. I never saw him step out further than, you know, the free throw line. Um, was that his thing? Or was there some, you know, some suggestions that he not, you know, stretch out too far and shoot a lot of those? I don't know. I, I truly don't. But, um, like, typically, you know, you're not going to have, like, if you've watched Tennessee play, they're not going to have their bigs out there trying to shoot like Kevin Durant. Even in, a, in an era where everybody who is, like, six foot eleven fans expect you to look like Kevin Durant where you can shoot threes and do all that stuff. That's It's why Giannis, you know, got such a bad rap because he couldn't do that stuff. Um, and, heck, look at him. He's a champion now. Yeah, I was about to say, by the way, congrats to, to him to dropping 50 in the in the game six. And <clears throat> I, I am very happy for him. I know this nothing to do with UT basketball, but I'm very happy for him and him no. getting the title. Yeah, and, and I'll get back to Tennessee basketball but in a second. But, like, that's that's one of those things. Maybe there's some things I'm old school about, and I appreciate the guys who kind of stick it out. Uh, there's nothing – because when you watch the reaction – that Giannis's reaction last night where he was just overwhelmed by the moment that was really cool um, as opposed to all these guys who kind of hop on create you know create informed teams they win championships that kind of ultimately don't mean that they don't feel great um, you know Kevin Durant still out here arguing with um, so when you go back to you know go, you know trying to go back to Tennessee here um, you know we've talked about it do um, I, I'm not surprised by the guard uh, kind of, we also have to remember there was on this guy so I don't know if we knew I don't know if we were being fair in our early you know me more so than you being fair with our early evaluations because there just wasn't a lot out there on the kid and typically you form your evaluations off of knowledge you know information and we didn't have a ton of played like what one year. For me, I didn't have a ton of information on the kid, so it was very hard for me to make an informed like assessment of him. But uh so what I mean, so I, I, I just didn't really expect a lot. And I guess that's what's happened with that's probably happened with a lot of people um when it came to him. So I think that's why there's probably some level of surprise is just simply the fact that there wasn't a ton of information about the kid. Um, Huntley Hatfield does not really surprise me much at all because that's a kid who reclassified. That's a kid who's always been highly ranked. That's a kid who is always he's in a program where I hate to say it like this and it sound bad, but it, it's a how can I say this and not tick off half of Knoxville? Uh, <laughs> it's a social status. Is treated as a social status to play with that program. Like there's so much clout that comes from being a part of that program. Um, now they have really good players. Don't get me wrong. Please don't get me wrong. Uh, I mean, Jaden Springer, Huntley Hatfield, B.J. Edwards, Blue Kane, Jasheen Felton. I mean, Jaw Felton, uh, Jason Brooks. Those are. I mean, the last three I named, Blue and Jason, are 2023 20, kids. Uh, Joff Felton is a 2024 kid. 
Obviously, B.J. Edwards is committed to Tennessee. Quante Berry just committed to Providence. You know, Huntley Hatfield. We'll see what happens with Tom. But there are really good players in that program. But, look, I mean, some, you know, there's probably, in some cases, there is some level of just, uh, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Uh, arrogance is not quite the word. But I guess maybe there is a level of arrogance that comes from being a part of that program because you're just you're rewarded and afforded a lot just by virtue of being a part of that program, especially when you are highly ranked and highly regarded. Uh, so you're talking about a 17, 18 year old kid who um, has always been treated as one of the best players in the country. He has gifts, maybe unlike anybody that's ever walked through the door um, of Pratt Pavilion or Thompson Bowling Arena. I mean, I, I kid you not. And look, that coaching staff is going to get all that diva behavior out of them. They are. I think this is a very much a preseason thing. I mean, we're talking about Baselli's, uh, Basilio, not Baselli's, Basilio's, uh, you know, it, this is a June, July assessment of a kid, which means he's just been here for a month or two. So therefore, he's probably used to a certain way. Like, if you hear these things in November, then I would be concerned. I think right now, you know, you're talking about a kid who is very, you know, been very much a part of a, a very, it's a highly regarded, but it's also kind of a social status type AAU program and B Mays and Bobby Mays. Um, where, I mean, like, there's not a, you know, there's a lot of guys who are just out there like it's commercial and, you know, just like it's a, like it's a status. Um, and you know it's a it's a pleasure it's you're afforded this right to be a part of this program and so you could buy you could buy into some of that stuff um but look i fully expect Huntley Hatford to be ready to go day one because otherwise look if josiah jordan james is if he's healthy he can kind of do some of the same stuff i mean he can kind of he kind of has a, a similar skill set um yeah, I mean, like, I watched, when I watched the tape of Huntley Hatfield, I only saw him live, like, maybe once or twice. Um, he's a kid who wants to be on the perimeter, so when you, you know, when the report is guard skills, okay. Okay. But, I mean, that's not always a bad thing. Yeah, I think the biggest question is, what is, what is Tennessee's plan for him? What was Tennessee's plan for him that they felt the need to somebody felt the need to leak the report that what what was it that he was a guard or something? What what was the report about him? What was the yeah? What was uh, Vasilio's report on Huntley Hatfield that he? Uh, yeah, he says his physical skills are jumping off the page already. I was told that he plays at times like he has a guard, like he has guard aspirations. Yeah. So yeah, that stuff. Like if people want to look, if people want to just look look at AAU tape and film and highlight tapes, all the things are right there for you to see. Like it's no surprise that he has guard aspirations. Nobody wants to be down there banging in the post anymore. Like welcome to 2021. Like that's just the reality. Like you know John Fulkerson, look man, he's an anomaly. Like and he doesn't want to bang. But he's, I mean, he understands for him to play and for Tennessee to be at his best, he has to go down there. Um, these other kids don't want to, especially the ones that are probably going to be gone in eight months. 
So, I mean, it's not, I don't think that's necessarily, um, I mean, no disrespect to Basilio. That's not necessarily breaking news. It was right there for you to see that the kid, you know, wanted to be out in the perimeter, wants to shoot threes. I mean, I guarantee, I'm pretty sure that um, Huntley Hatfield and Adu are very like-minded guys, but there can only be one of you out there. And right now, I'm guessing Huntley Hatfield has to let up on that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess the reports are really good. I mean, we talked about some of the others. No need to rehash them. Uh, you and I spoke about some of them, and uh, off, you know, off air. Uh, but look, I mean, I think the expectation is that Tennessee is as talented and as you know, and potentially as deep as it's been in quite some time. And for that to be, for that to hold up, some of these younger guys are going to have to you know, fit, fit into roles. Like, Tennessee can handle... Tennessee can handle bringing Adu along slowly. They can't really handle needing to bring Huntley Hatfield on slowly. That kid's going to have to be ready in some capacity early on. You've got a Kamwa. You, you've got even Euros. You've got Fulkerson. You've got three pieces there of, of guys who are experienced um, on that, you know, on that roster. And... So they can kind of handle the load, and a dude can kind of just get some on-the-job training there, a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, but like, you can handle him not being ready. Like Kennedy Chandler has to be ready. Huntley Hatfield will need to be ready in some capacity. You know, Justin Powell will need to be ready. Like the rest of them, eh, eh, you know, you know, if if look if. If you exceed our expectations, that's great. But if not, we'll see you in twenty one twenty two. One another kind of the things I want to bring up here with what Basilia was talking about in in his <clears throat> uh, report here was talking about Justin Powell. He says that he's not not heard much about him yet, but he's making a lot of shots according to some people. He tracks to get some significant minutes depending on what happens with Vescovi and Bailey. I think, and he mentions here, that he thinks Tennessee would like to play Bailey more, but the lights are going to have to come on for Bailey on defense. So Powell figures to get some minutes as a backup point guard as well, which which we've talked about on the show. You know, talking about um, obviously Kenny Chandler is going to be your point guard. Does Visc- you know Vescovi has time there as well, but Powell played a lot of point guard this past season for Auburn before his injury and then before Sharif Cooper got on campus as well. I think that to me, we've talked, I mean, we've talked already so a, a decent amount this off season about rotations and who's, who's going to play where we talked specifically about, you know, post play and Ferguson's obviously going to get a, as long as he's healthy, a chunk of minutes, a ton of minutes, but can Olivia Camal have like a, a breakout season and can he be a, the guy who's been a significant contributor, you know, Punt the Hatfield, we just mentioned, he's going to have to be a guy who's going to have to contribute. Um, and, and does a do play? What about Urosh? So we've, we've talked about posts a lot. We have also talked about these three guys right here a lot. And I think these three guys and their minute allotment is going to be a really big key to Tennessee's season. And that's Justin Powell, Santiago Vescovia, and Victor Bailey Jr. Those three guys are going to, I mean, they kind of played the same position. And it's hard to have all three guys on the floor at the same time because you also have Josiah Jordan-James, who you got to, as long as he's healthy, which again, his, his wrist injury, I don't know exactly how bad it is or anything like that, but that's got to concern you because he's, he's a guy who just unfortunately has been nicked up and banged up for his entire Tennessee career to this point. 
But he's is he, if he's healthy, he's on the court. So you can play. You have Kenny Chandler at point guard, most likely. You have Fulkerson and another post player probably out on the floor. Usually, I would say it's usually a Fulkerson and another post guy, whether it's Adu or Kamwa or Honey Hatfield or Urush, whatever you're, you're going to have. You know, one other post player out there with Fulkerson most of the time, and that leaves that one spot for those three guys of Powell, Bailey, and Viscopi. And obviously, you know, Tennessee can go more small ball if, if Huntley Hatfield doesn't end up, you know, if he doesn't mature like you think he's going to, like you want him to and um, whatnot, and you're not playing as many minutes, you can play, you know, I guess Fulky at the five and have Josiah be a, a four, which you've mentioned before on the podcast, Gene, but then and have a, a Powell and a Bailey out there at the same time, or Powell and Viscopi, or Viscopi and a Bailey. Because I think Viscopi and Bailey bring a lot for you offensively, and I think Powell does too. But which of those guys is going to be your best defender? Because we know Rick Barnes values defense so much. And with, I think Chandler is a pretty good on-ball defender. Um, a guy who, he's got a lot of speed. He can he can cover those those other ball handlers in front of him and stuff. They're usually not going to blow by him. But we've seen Bailey not have great defense. Viscobi's defense has improved, but it's still not, you know, it's definitely not the best part of his game. And I don't know enough about Powell to know how good his defense is. And, and you know, it wasn't like, they played some good, obviously some good competition uh, in the non-conference last year uh, before he got hurt, but he didn't get a chance to you know show a whole lot in ten games of his defense and kind of what to expect from him. And you know, and now as he's matured and, and hopefully healthy and stuff at Tennessee, those three guys to me figuring out the minute allotment with them, and then you throw in a Quentin Demonje and you throw in a Jemai Mayshack and and those guys vying for minutes as well. That to me is where you have the real like log jam of minutes because obviously they're not all going to be on the floor all the time you're going to have guys go to the bench and get rest and stuff but like I mean can you can you get Justin Powell 25 minutes can you get Victor Bailey 25 minutes can you get Viscobi 25 minutes because if you look at Tennessee's um, stats this past year again that was obviously without Justin Powell out on the floor but you look at the minutes per game this past year Victor Bailey had basically 25 25 he's 24.8 Viscovi had 29.2. And that was with, obviously, uh, Keon and Jaden both averaging 25 minutes a game. Fulkerson averaging 26 minutes a game. Eve Pons averaging almost 29 minutes a game. And then Josiah getting 27. But that was with you playing seven guys, basically. You, you, you didn't have an eighth guy that you played a ton um, and, and played consistently. KMW and Anisiki both had under nine minutes per game. And they neither one played in the all 27 games or 20... Uh, 27, 28 games since he played last year? 27. So they didn't play in every single game either. You're going to have, a, 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 hopefully for Tennessee's sake, a, a deeper bench this year. So like ha- the, the minute allotment, you get you get a chance of Victor Bailey or Viscovi or Josiah Jordan-James seeing their minutes decrease from this past year, even though they're going to be veterans and guys you thought would you know play a bigger role and play more minutes. I think that's going to be the interesting thing to see is that minute allotment and kind of how that works out with those three guys. Obviously, Kennedy Chandler is going to play a lot of minutes as long as he's healthy. You're going to need him to play a lot of minutes as long as he's healthy too. So, like, I, I think that to me, that two and three spot, really the two spot mostly though, is going to be the one that like that's going to be the 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 X factor for Tennessee is how that two spot shakes out. Who those guys is, is gets hot at the right time? Who those guys can play the most consistent defense? Because I think those all the all three of those guys have some good off, offensive skills. But as we know, you got to play defense if you're going to play under Rick Marnes. So which of those guys is going to play the best defense and get the most minutes and be the more consistent shooter, especially because 
Bailey showed at times that he could be a really good shooter, but then he was extremely streaky. And I think Vescovi being off ball will help him as a shooter. And then Powell showed a lot of promise as a shooter in his 10 games last year with Auburn. So, Gene, that to me is the biggest question mark. It's not even, you know, about Huntley Hatfield. It's not even about Kennedy, Ch- Kennedy Chandler. It's not even about Adu or whatever. To me, it's those three players and how in the world does that two spot shake out this year? Do you just, do, at some point, do you just play all three of them on the floor at one point? You have Chandler at some point and, and Ferguson as the the five, and you just put out those three guys and say, all right, let's go shoot the lights out or <laughs> just jack up a bunch of threes. Like I, the, the rotation this year is going to be a really interesting thing to watch for me. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a level of versatility that they can throw out there to where, um, and again, I, I think versatility is not the word. I think competition is the word in that, it's real easy for you to go out there and not be your best when you don't have anybody on your like nipping at your heels. They had some of that in the past couple of years. Now it seems as though at every single position, including point guard with Chandler, you've got some guys that, like if you aren't getting the job done, there's somebody that is ready to take your spot. Um, and you know, I don't know if there is. Obviously, you have you have Chandler, you have Huntley Hatfield, uh, that are probably the most, probably your best expected best players. I think John Fulkerson will be a good player for Tennessee this year, and maybe the most, perhaps the most important piece, just because I mean he's been there forever. But I, I would say your best players are probably going to be some semblance of Chandler and Huntley Hatfield. And you kind of need that. Um, You kind of need your most talented players to also be your best because otherwise they're just out there running up and down the court getting cardio and you've got fans getting mad because they feel like they're not getting enough the return on their investment from the fact that these are quote unquote five-star guys. Um, You know, but if Chandler's not getting the job done, you can slide Powell. You can slide Vescovi over. You can slide Powell over. You've got options there. Um, if if whoever whoever wins that starting two guard, if, if it's Bailey, whoever, if Bailey's not getting the job done, you can slide. You, you can you know just slot Powell in there. You, you've got guys at every at every single position. If you know if you start you know whoever you start at the you know one two three four five however you want to frame it. Um, there's a guy who is ready. You don't have to have guys that. I mean, you can have your leading your leading minute person could average 30 minutes a game. Whereas that team a few years ago, that 30 what 31 win team, like almost their entire. I mean, four like I'm pretty sure like three or four of their starters have like 30 something minutes a game. Like they were good, but I know Grant was over 30. I'm pretty sure Admiral was over 30. Bone, I'm pretty sure, was over 30. Alexander was probably in the mid-20s. And I'm just I'm spitballing here. I, I have zero clue. Uh, I'm just throwing these numbers out. I mean, Bowden and Turner kind of, you know, Bowden, Turner, and Bone kind of inter, you know, inter, interchanged with each other. Those were the three um, that kind of did a lot of shuffling in and out for each other. Um, but, like, you're, you know, those guys were in the 30s because they didn't have anybody that could even really spell them. And if that's going to be the case, that's not 
you've got a good rotation, but ask the you know ask the Phoenix Suns about having a good first three four guys and have no bench. Ask the Brooklyn Nets about that, you know, because that's two teams whose you know championship aspirations were dashed because they had zero depth. You know, like heck, the there's like two guys. I mean, I I don't say this to be funny. I say this to be serious. I'd imagine John Fulkerson's probably older than two or three guys on the Phoenix Suns. And I mean, I don't mean that as a joke. Um, I mean, I mean that seriously. Like, like he's, I mean, he and Booker aren't that much different in age. Booker's older than Bridges. And I'm pretty sure. I mean, I don't know Cam Johnson's got some of that. You know, he spent forever in college, so he probably doesn't. But like that's. You know, like, but they had zero depth. The Nets had zero depth, and that's that killed both of those teams. You know, that killed Tennessee, and that's that year in the Sweet Sixteen. I mean, that year, they just didn't have the depth, and so, like, I, I feel from what I'm looking at when I look at, when I look over and peruse that roster, Tennessee's roster this year is. They've got some depth at a lot of different positions. They've got some guys who can interchange. And I know we talked a few weeks ago about who may lead the team in scoring. Um, there's a lot of answers to that because I do think that there's – you could have a guy who maybe gives you – I mean, it's, we could do the same – apply the same to the minutes. We could have a guy who maybe averages 27 minutes a game first part of the season whose minutes dip down to like 16. Because how good are those minutes? You know, like, look, man, no disrespect to the kid, but Devontae Gaines started the game in Knoxville. Like, they, because they were fresh out of options in that moment. Uh, And look, man, I I hope the kid kills it at George Mason. But, you know, that kid started a game. Like, you know, how quality, like, it is. Is you average, you know, is a player averaging 30 something minutes? Is that out of, you know, because he's just so good? Or just because you don't really have anybody that can kind of take him out? Or the, you know, the depth behind him is even worse than he is. Yeah. I mean, look at, look at Ursha's first year or first whatever semester at Tennessee. He started multiple games for Tennessee. Yes. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, and that's, and that's the type of stuff that you you look at and you deal with. And it's like, Man, like, is this team good? Like, you always judge things based on how good your team is. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, I, look, man, it's basketball. So people have to score points. People have to get rebounds. You know, people, ha- you know, like, those are the two main things that you're typically going to have. EJ Anasicki put up numbers before he got to Tennessee. Mm-hmm. You know, then he got to Tennessee, and you know, he kind of got overwhelmed a little bit by what, you know, what was out there. Yeah, and to your point, in the first uh, eight games of the year, where Tennessee they had played two SEC games at that point. His first eight games of the year last year, averaging thirteen and a half minutes, and then in the uh, let's see, in the final, did he play thirteen minutes the rest of the season? <laughs> he played double digit minutes at every game in the first eight games of Tennessee. He played double digit minutes three times in the final, uh, what thirteen plus games that he played let's see in the final yeah 14 games he played in he played double digit minutes three times and averaged 5.7 minutes in that four, 14 game span so he went from 13 and a half in the first eight to you know 
five-ish minutes in the final 14 games. So that that's just an example, like you said, of, of minutes early on and then diminishing significantly um, later on in the season. Yeah, and just like, look, I mean, I was doing some research. Uh, you know, we talked about Kansas earlier in the podcast. You, you mentioned Kansas in the podcast, and I was doing some research because, uh, you know, UTC picked up, you know, Silvio D'Souza uh, yesterday, and uh, I was looking, man, that year that they went to the Final Four, I mean, that kid averaged, like, that kid had a game with, like, the Elite Eight or, you know, or Final Four or Sweet 16, one of those games. Where it made, as a true freshman, the kid averaged, like, he had, like, 26 minutes and, like, you know, 10 rebounds and, you know, like, but most of the season, his minutes, like, fluctuated. Like, so... Uh, it, it all you you're sometimes minutes will go up sometimes minutes go down and, and because and some of it is has to do with just having competition having people that can make you have to sit down um, in Tennessee I think at a lot of positions and you know this started with us talking about that you know kind of like that wing position like I'm, I'm guessing two of those guys are going to have to start you know, like you, you've got to figure that stuff out because you've got a point guard, you've you've got a, you know, you've got a big and Fulkerson, and you've got a kind of a four man in Huntley Hatfield. Um, some somebody out of those three is going to have to start two positions. Like maybe you start Josiah Jordan James at one of them, and that kind of that actually makes that you know that other kind of guard league guard thing kind of makes that you know a little bit more important because those minutes are going to be harder to come by especially if somebody like a, a, a Jordan James kind of takes you know takes that position and runs with it which actually to me would make your your team even better because basketball look basketball is a big man's game it's for it's for bigger guys and if you can if if Tennessee was able to start Chandler uh, Powell, James, Huntley, Hatfield, and Fulkerson. That's a really nice lineup. That's athletic. I agree. Yeah. That's got a that's got a shooter out there. That's got a couple of playmakers in Huntley, Hatfield, and Chandler. That's got a guy that can finish in Fulkerson. Um, he has a glue guy in Jordan James and Josiah Jordan James, and so like and then you can you can bring look man if you want okay cool you want to take Powell out put Bailey in but like what I like about the one person I mentioned is yeah you've got your six foot point guard but after that you're six 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 eleven six nine and you're long mm-hmm. and you're athletic yeah if you, you know you want to take Powell out and put Bailey in cool you're six four um you know I mean but if you're going some semblance of Chandler, Viscovi, Bailey, or Powell, and then you throw in Huntley Hatfield and Fulkerson, that that's gonna that group's gonna give up a lot of points. <laughs> and from what we saw last year, you know, Tennessee struggled to put points on the board. So, uh, so yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how those minutes are divvied out. Uh, I, I do think that you know you need Chandler out there playing a certain number. You need um, but again, after Chandler, I don't think there's another guy that I think is just that indispensable. Not a single one. I mean, and I think everybody else, I mean, even he is to some extent, but 
you know, when you bring in a guy who's that talented, you kind of want him to play X amount of time. But everybody else, uh, I mean, do you see? I mean, Nathaniel, do you see a guy who's out there that's like, man, we, you know, that you feel right now is, man, we got to have that guy on the court. And who knows? Maybe I'm just forgetting, but this is kind of my thought right now. No, I mean, you you make good points. Uh, I, I I like that lineup you had of of Chandler, two six six guys, six eleven guy, six nine guy. Like that, that's a really good long. That that reminds me of some of those really good Kentucky teams that always had a really good length. Not 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 the ones that have had length and not be able to anything do do anything with it. But you look, at, I'm like being serious. The teams that were really good for Kentucky over the last five ten years, and they always seem to have. Or even LSU, those teams just had a lot of length in the post and with their guard play too. That always seemed to bother teams defensively because they may not be like the most elite defenders ever, but they get their hands in the passing lane because they have good wingspans. They they keep those guys in front of them because they can shuffle their feet, you know, well enough to to move like that. So um, I think you make good points to <laughs> to answer your question as we wind down the podcast here about John Fulkerson and his age. He just turned 24 in April. So he is the same age as Devin Booker and Mikael Bridges on the Suns, but he's older than Tyshawn Alexander, DeAndre Ayton, and Jalen Smith of the uh, Suns. So he's also the same age or older than like half the guys who played for my Celtics this past year. So he's older than Aaron Naismith, older than Langford, Carson Edwards, Grant Williams, Jason Tatum, uh, Wagner, Wagner when he was on the team for the, t- the two seconds he was on the team. Tremont Waters, Robert Williams, Peyton Pritchard, and he's the same age as Jalen Brown. So, like, he—he's—he's he's an old old head on Tennessee's team. He would have fit right in with the Celtics this past year and, and their kind of young roster. But man, that's just hard. It's funny to think about. He's older than like dozens of NBA players, and he's going to be entering his. He's a Tennessee baseball had some guys coming back, Evan Russell and Luke Lipschitz, that are I think the tor- the corner of the term was super seniors. I think Fulgerson's a a mega senior at this point. He's the guy who's been here yes. for. Yes. We, we joke about his age all the time. I mean, it's funny to think he is only 24, but like it feels like he's been at in Knoxville the the same amount of time Rick Barnes has been here. Because I mean, just about has been. He was, I think he was. Yeah, he came in in 2016-17, which that would have been. That would have been Rick Barnes' second year head coach, I think. I think so. Yeah, so he's been here just about as long as Rick Barnes has been in Knoxville. There's almost there's almost never been a Rick Barnes without a John Fulkerson at Tennessee, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, <laughs> it's impressive, and I mean, look, the yeah. kids had a kids had a heck of a career. I mean, he, I don't know if he'll go down top whatever in any you know sort of category, but again, like I think we talked games played. Sure. <laughs> Uh, but I, I do think that he's the last remaining remnant of, you know, the the, the quote unquote glory couple of years. Yeah, you, you said before he's he's the last good remnant of like the feel good times. Yeah, and so I think he'll go down with that that mm-hmm. sort of a feel. I'm not sure if there is another if there's a person. You know, I think some people felt some type of way about Wayne Chisholm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I God, since I don't know, I mean, like obviously Grant and Admiral, they put up. I mean, Admiral was obviously recently. Um, those guys were very much a part of that, but 
I mean, to to be just a guy who was, you know, an okayish player, but your impact, your you know, you're remembered as the mem- you know, as time goes on, John Fulkerson, you know, in twenty years from now, John Fulkerson will be like a two thousand point scorer, like a fifteen hundred rebound guy, like a thousand assists. Like I think like the legend of him will just grow in the in the minds of Tennessee fans. Um just because, I mean, like he's going to be, he's so fondly remembered, and heck, he's still there. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure how many people are afforded that sort of, like Skylar McBee doesn't even get that stuff. Like, I mean, he was yeah. there for a while, but he wasn't, he wasn't that. Plus, the team was, you know, pretty good back then. But um, like I said I think maybe you get Wayne Chisholm uh, before then. It's yeah, like Brandon Wharton, I don't think got it much of that. Uh, he, I think he's the only person from those, you know, Jerry Green years that kind of has looked back. I think if you want to to liken it to football, it's almost like how fans feel about Juwan Jennings. He wasn't the guy. They think Juwan Jennings is more electrifying than Volkerson was, but like he wasn't a guy that he. I don't remember. He he finished in like the top 10, top 5 in a lot of different categories for career because he was at Tennessee for forever too in career numbers and things like that. But he never had like a truly explosive like record-setting season and whatnot. But And then he goes and gets drafted in the 7th round and all fans are losing their minds because he got drafted in the 7th round by the 49ers. Like that's, that's I think it's comparable to me to what how, how all fans view Phil Gross. And they, they know he's not, you know, He's not a Chris Lofton. He's not an Allen Houston. He's not a Bernard King or whatever. But he, but he's a guy that fans like love and feel attached to because he's been here forever and he's been with the ups and downs like like John like like Juwan Jennings has and Juwan Jennings like purposely endeared himself to Vol fans just like Fulkerson has. So I think that's to me that's the comparison I've I've kind of always thought of. Again, Jennings had more electrifying plays. He had the hail mary grab. He had the the touchdown against Florida. But Fulkerson's had his fair share of, of big moments. He had a couple of big dunks. He had that 27-point performance against Kentucky that helped Tennessee win that game. So I mean, he, he's had his fair share of moments for sure, too. And, but I think that's, a, to me, that's the most apt comparison I can think of. But if you're looking at basketball, I think you're right. I think Wayne Chisholm kind of, I think that kind of fits the mold because fans really liked Wayne Chisholm a lot. And he, was, he, was, he wasn't one of, I wouldn't say he's one of Tennessee's top five, maybe even top, he, I think he could argue top ten, player for Tennessee in the last like 50 years but still he'd be like right on the fringe of that but I he wasn't like he was one of the all-time all greats for Tennessee ever but he was a very good player who hustled and made a lot of good plays and Vol fans liked him because of his personality and he was you know endeared himself to Vol fans just like Fulgerson has endeared himself to Vol fans and has hustled and has you know consistently worked his butt off and has made good plays so yeah I think I think you're right about that um and just kind of how he's viewed by Vol fans too. Before we end the podcast, talk, speaking of Wayne Chisholm, uh, we will not talk again before this happens, but on Friday night, got the first uh, TBT game for the Volunteers, by the way. You know, we've talked about them before in the podcast, but the Volunteers uh, will be taking on, again, Purdue, <laughs> another Purdue team, but they'll be taking on Purdue's team in the basketball tournament on July 23rd at 7 p.m. Eastern time on ESPN. So, I think it's actually on ESPN. I don't think it's like just a streaming only. I think it's actually going to be on like your actual ESPN channel. So check it out. I, I think that'll be it'll be interesting. It's it's a good off season thing to do and watch and, and talk about or whatever. But um, I want to see if I can find the rosters. I feel like there's a couple of guys 
who were initially supposed to be on the roster who were no longer on the roster because of I think like I want to say um I want to say like Jordan Bowden has like got an opportunity and like in the NBA like you know like a summer league opportunity so he's taken that side so I, I want to say he's not on the roster anymore but I could be wrong um but we, we've talked about it before you got Wayne Chisholm you got guys like John Fields you got Juwan Smith you do have Lamonte Turner on there who he's still on the on the roster right now so and Chris Lofton obviously is the the big name for Tennessee so that'd be fun I think Tyler Smith and Duke Cruz I want to say also on the team so yeah keep that again, again that's on Friday uh, this Friday, July 23rd at 7 p.m. Eastern, Tennessee will be taking on Purdue, as they always do, in basketball for the tournament, or the, the basketball tournament, I guess the the TBT. I think it's just the tournament is what it's called. Yeah. So. Tournament. And by the way, the I don't know if y'all know it has the Elam ending, which I can't. I don't feel like I can describe appropriately without looking at it right in front of me. But it's a different way to end games. You, you it's always a game is always going to end on a made shot essentially is what it is you don't have like it tries to cut down on fouls and like all this you know trying to get the foul line and stuff you have i think it's a certain point once it gets a certain point there's like a score to win type of thing and so a game is always going to end on a made bucket rather than with just a buzzer so they have a different way it ends it seems intriguing i've not watched a game with the, the elam ending but i've heard early um returns that it seems it seems entertaining it seems fun it seems like something that works in a setting like this where it's obviously not like you know true basketball, not, not March Madness or whatever. So we'll see. I think it's going to be interesting to watch, but I think that'll be where we sign off for this episode. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you all for watching, or watching, excuse me, for listening. One day we'll have a, a video version of the podcast, so you can watch it at some point, but not right now. Thank you all for listening along. We really appreciate it. As I said at the top of the show, subscribe to us wherever you can find podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, everywhere else. Leave us a review. Uh, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you can. And we really, really appreciate that for sure. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Vol Hoops Fever on Twitter. Go give us a like on Facebook, Vol Basketball Fever on there as well. Signing off for Gene, I am Nathaniel, and this has been another episode of the Vol Basketball Fever podcast. Thank you for listening to the Vol Basketball Fever podcast. Subscribe to the show so you'll never miss another episode.